Hey, everybody, this is Jeff Johnson from A Film By Podcast, and you are listening to the wildly popular Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, where we're b- 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 bad. Uh, <laughs> That's good. That's a good intro right there. <laughs> Shirley fans, we are here today to talk about the Stephen King trifecta from 1983, The Dead Zone, Old Yeller, and Herbie Goes Bananas. <laughs> <laughs> You actually stole that from me. I was going to drop that later. (laughs) So here's the deal. You know, we talk about storytelling. The thing is, is that tell it to me, just tell it to me different, Uh right? Yeah. So Cujo clearly is a retelling of Old Yeller. I literally didn't talk to you about this. I know, right? Uh, this is funny. That our, our brains both went there, but that's yes. funny. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Okay, and we I know we did talk about that. Christine is actually a retelling of Herbie Goes Bananas, <laughs> yeah. right? Right. And The Dead Zone, I actually have not a retelling, but mm-hmm. it has been retold by Stephen King, 112263. It's about a man who knows the future, uh, who yeah. sets out to change it. Right, or the past, sort of. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. How about that? The future past or the past future. Yeah, that's good. It's future for him, but he's yeah, in the past. Yeah, so. that's great. That's a great one. Well, you so this, that's that's a good topic, right? So this is these are Stephen King books yeah, yes. first, and then they've obviously made all of these into movies. And you've got a a significant history with his I books. Do, yeah. So my history is I can remember not being a big reader for most of the time I was in school. And then I get to be a freshman in high school and I'm in study hall and I'm sitting behind this kid who is a couple years older than me, who I think is one of the coolest guys in school. Yeah. And he's perusing this big old book and I'm like, what are you reading? He shows me and it's it. Uh-huh. I'd ask him about it and he just, you know, has nothing but good, powerful things to say about it. And I'm like, I think, I think this is on the bookshelf at our house. I'm going to go try this. And so the first real book that I ever picked up and read was <laughs> It. I mean, it's 900 and something pages long. That's an incredible feat for your first book. And loved it. I loved it. Yeah. But I haven't really read many Stephen King books beyond that. There was the book Four Past Midnight that had like, Four different short stories in it. One of the short stories in Four Past Midnight. Yeah. It's called The Sun Dog. Okay. And it actually involves the character Ace from Stand By Me, Kiefer Sutherland's character. Oh, okay. As an older man. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I might have that. I might, might have been the one I read. I'm again, I was in high school, so it's been a while back. So basically, he has this Polaroid camera, and in he's taking pictures, and he notices there's this dog in the pictures. Yeah. And for every picture it takes, it gets a little closer. Yeah, I think I did read that. Yeah, yes. So, oh, that's great. Yeah. So that's a good one. Yeah. Ace finally got his. Ace got his. Yeah. <laughs> By the way. Way, we will probably spoil the books in case you haven't read those right. if you've only seen the movies so just be aware of that these may be books that you uh you haven't read i haven't read any of them i haven't read any of these books i've read all three and i'm excited to to hear how the books vary from the movies but the other stephen king book that i've read from cover to cover is eleven twenty two sixty three, which i got from you yeah yeah that's my all-time favorite stephen king book yeah. I would love to do a top five Stephen King type of episode one of these days. Yeah, so. I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, Cujo is what got me started on my Stephen King journey. Wow. So I'm at a friend's house. It's a sleepover. They've got HBO. And it's like, hey, you guys want to watch this 
you know, R-rated movie. You know, we're all 11, you know. <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't be doing this, but. Uh, yeah, R-rated, that means boobies, right? Well, I hoped, but uh, it did not, not mean did that. did not in this circumstance. Uh, but anyway, it captivated me, man. I was entranced. So next step, because I love the movie, is go check out the book, right? Wow, okay. And as a 11-year-old or 12-year-old, whatever I was when I read the book, there's a lot of adult themes in there that I didn't really understand. You know, the affair and sort of the kind of the nastiness of the breakup of the marriage and yeah. a lot of stuff involved in that that was too much for an 11-year-old. But the storytelling and all that was was captivating. And so I, I set off on my journey, starting with Cujo. I mean, I've read It. I've read The Stand, which is probably my second favorite book of all time. Yeah. Of course, Skeleton Crew, Night Shift, all those little short story collections are awesome. I've read Salem's Lot. I've read Carrie. I've read Pet Cemetery. I, I basically have read everything he put out until I got to maybe graduate from college. Okay. Okay, guys, before we go on, I just want to tell you about this awesome podcast we found. Can you hear a big difference between Parliament and Funkadelic? Are you able to name the members of Wings who were not Paul and Linda? Are you intimately familiar with every track on side six of The Clash's Sandinista? Then Discographies, the podcast for you. Discography is a music obsessive's dream come true. Our friend Dave Gebro and his guests explore an artist or band's entire recorded output in a futile but valiant attempt to reach the higher truth, often cleverly disguised as a nerdy compendium of star ratings and lists. Some of the show's many amazing guests have included director John Landis, Jim Florentine doing four episodes on Black Sabbath, Lou Barlow rating the zombies, members of Pavement doing a five-parter rating of their own work, and Bob Mayer on The Replacements. He's also been releasing three shows a week for over a year in one of the most active Patreons humanly possible. You are not going to want to miss it. Discography is available wherever podcasts are consumed. You and I, we definitely recommend you subscribe and listen to this podcast. It's great. Fantastic. Deep dive to its deepest. The 2000s were a little rough for me to, to hang around. Right. I didn't like his, that stuff. Well, and now that you say that, I had forgotten. I did actually, I went through, was it Different Seasons? Is that the name of the book? Different that, Seasons, yeah. That has, of course, Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, has... Stand By Me, which was called The Body. Right. Has Apt Pupil. Right. You talk about shook. After I read Apt Pupil, uh, I was shook. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a, a poignant ending and kind of similar. Again, it's a, it's a, he sticks with a lot of the same themes. We just got finished with our top five 70s movies to watch at Halloween and right. our top five 80s movies to watch at Halloween. And obviously, Stephen King was a big factor in that. I cannot believe we didn't bring up The Shining. I know, right? I like feel guilty. I mean, like it's a great movie, but it's just, it's like a, you got to watch this when you're very specifically in the mood for it because it's so overpowering. Well, you know, famously, we, you know, they talk about it even in Ready Player One. Stephen yeah. King does not like the movie adaptation of The Shining. Yeah. He also doesn't really care for one of the movies we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And as it turns out, it looked like he was right about The Shining until, as with most Stanley Kubrick movies, it starts off, it's not got a good reception, it doesn't do very well, and then few years go by and suddenly people go, oh, this is a work of absolute genius. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm, I'm glad that I actually got you to read a Stephen King book and yeah. that you enjoyed. Yeah. So I guess maybe The Stand is your next. No, thank you. It's 
you know, 2,500 pages <laughs> or whatever. Crazy long. So, yeah. But no, it's that's... amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. Epic. Well, I, I remember when the TV movie came out. I watched the movie as it was coming out. And it came out right around the same time that it, the TV version, came out. That's right? right. It was just a couple years later, maybe. It was 1990 and the stand was 94. Okay. So, anyway, we've talked Stephen King in depth. Yep. We mentioned in our 70s episode that his very first novel to get published was also immediately made into a movie he sold it for only 2500 bucks and the name of that movie was carrie right as i mentioned in that episode he had actually thrown this thing away threw it in the trash didn't like the way it was going his wife dug it out of the trash read it and said keep going and that's why he is the guy that we everyone knows today right it's true yeah and so in the next five years he <laughs> he churns out book after book after book classic after classic salem's lot came out in 75 the shining came out in 77 also in 77 he published rage as richard bachman then the you can no longer buy that book now why because it's about a kid who brings a gun to a school and kills other kids and they are like wow yep and actually stephen king endorses the idea that it's no longer available that's impressive Jeez. okay anyway <laughs> on to less depressing topics the stand came out in 78 yep the Long Walk came out in 79. That was another Richard Bachman, our pseudonym book. And then in 1979, he came out with The Dead Zone. And despite the fact that you probably have known every non-Richard Bachman book that I just mentioned, this was the first time that a book hit the top 10 in the U.S. for him. That's incredible, right? Five years later... All of these incredible books and The Dead Zone is the first one that hits. Even just four years after this point. So 79, he's got a bestseller. In 83, they're buying rights to his novels before they're out. Yeah. And they're bestsellers when they're releasing the movie. Exactly. Well, The Dead Zone is the first novel that takes place in Castle Rock. Yes. Uh, then, of course, we also have Cujo, which takes place in Castle Rock. That's correct. And then we had Stand By Me... The Dark Half, and Needful Things. Yeah, Needful Things, I think, is kind of the death of Castle Rock. The impression that I got was it was this town that was literally inhabited by all of the characters of Stephen King's novels. So you've you've got Ace and Gordy living in the same town with Johnny Smith or whoever. Yeah, you know, that's it's true. Out of the gate, and I know we'll get into this, but Sheriff Bannerman, the law enforcement officer that shows up and gets killed by Cujo, that's the guy played by Tom Skerritt in The Dead Zone, the guy that they look for the Castle Rock killer. And so that character, who you see in The Dead Zone, gets killed in Cujo. Yeah, and I mean, and, and Frank Dodd, the Castle Rock killer, is also like a supernatural haunting force that's involved in Cujo, right? That's right. Okay, so we've talked about the books a bit. You can tell me as we go on, oh, hey, here, this this is different or this is something else, but but let's talk about the movies, all right? Let's do it. Let's start with Cujo. It was the first one released. So Stephen King actually specifically picked Louis Teague to direct this movie. Um, he had seen a movie that Louis Teague had done called Alligator. Ah, uh, yeah. Have you seen it? Yeah. And what did you think? I mean, you know, it's, it's is it like, fun. Is it like Piranha? I yeah, mean, is it, it is. basically like that? Yeah. Because, I mean, Teague referred to it as a horror spoof, like not as an actual attempted at horror, but a horror spoof. Well, you know those urban legends where somebody flushes a baby alligator down a toilet <laughs> and then 
five years later, you've got this massive alligator in the living in the sewer system. That's what it's about. And early HBO, man, I was all about it. I, yeah, it was fun. So Stephen King handpicks Lewis Teague. Dan Blatt is the producer. Right. It's with a particular studio that ultimately it doesn't end up with. And so Dan Blatt is like, hey, sorry, Lewis, we're not going to be able to do this. And then Dan Blatt teams up with Warner Brothers. And Lewis Teague's like, all right, we're, we're back on. And he's like, eh, they really have somebody else that they would rather use. Uh-huh. And so the guy that they pick is a guy named Peter Medic. He's the same director who had done The Changeling just right before this movie came out, which was had done very well. And the director of photography was Tony Richmond. Keep in mind, there were multiple versions of this script written. And this is going to be a continuing story for all of these. And usually Stephen King takes his swing at, at it at least once. And every single time they're like, no, no. I know, right? That's yeah. crazy. So, I mean, the the one that Peter Medic is using is Barbara Turner's script. Yeah. And she had she had included the Frank Dodd part in her story as the supernatural connection that's haunting the little boy or whatever. So Peter Medic had had this grand idea for how this thing was going to begin. He had changed the name of the town from Castle Rock to Mendocino. I don't know what that is, but okay. that's what that was what it was supposed to be. And it was supposed to be that you you start on this big kind of crane shot into this stream of cars, and then it like follows the cars and over to a cemetery where you see a vampire bat who's going to ultimately be the vampire bat that infects Cujo with rabies. Okay. Okay. And it's such a big, complicated production and shot that two days into filming. Dan Blatt says, we're not freaking doing this. And he fires Peter Medic and Tony Richmond. Yep. Now, what do you do? You've, you are, you have started production at this point, right? It's <laughs> right. You've started production. And so he calls up Lewis Teague because Lewis Teague had already kind of had it in his head that he was going to direct. And he's like, can you come and direct this movie? Hey, uh, remember when we let you go? Uh, <laughs> we need you back. Yeah. And so he's, and Lewis Teague's like, yeah, I'm available. Let's do it. And he goes, okay, there's just one thing. You only have one day to prepare. Right. And Dan Blatt said, and I listened to silence for a second, and then Lewis Teague says, two days. And Dan Blatt says, okay, we'll shut down for two days. Right. So in that two days, I can't even imagine Lewis Teague, what he's got to go through, because there's a question about the cast, if the cast stays the same, a question about the script. Obviously, Barbara Turner's written one. There's been another couple of them that have been written. Stephen King was involved at some point, and he's just got to go, okay, I like some of the stuff from this script, but I don't like this other stuff, and we're going we're gonna to rearrange all of it and kind of put it together. But the beautiful thing for him, he said, was they had cast the perfect cast. Right. Now, you kick out a director after two days, your crew is going to be, I mean, this is an independent feature. So these are non-union guys. The crew was upset because they really loved Tony Richmond and people had nothing but nice things to say about Peter Medic, but they're scanned. Right. And so it's interesting. The article that I read, it says Peter Medic was devastated by this. Like he didn't walk away. He, he, he didn't quit. And he was like, this was sad. He was truly looking forward to this. And this was a, a depressing moment for him. And it turns out his son was a production assistant. His son stayed on and finished as a production really? as, uh, assistant for the uh, for the movie. Yeah. That's interesting. Christopher Medic stayed the whole time. Yeah. Well, good for him. I mean, that shows maturity. And I was going to tell you, Lewis Teague, here's his little catalog, right? We talked yeah. about Alligator, right? Yeah. Well, he goes on to do Cat's Eye. Yeah. Which you and I both enjoy. Yeah, very it's much. It's another yeah. Stephen King movie. Right. He does Jewel of the Nile. Flashback to our worst sequels of all time episode. A couple. <laughs> Go ahead, disagree with you on that one. Okay, yes. Uh, he does a movie called Collision Course with Jay Leno and Pat Morita. Oh gosh, yeah. And he does Navy Seals and the Dukes of Hazard reunion movie. 
His is not as <laughs> impressive a career as the other two directors that we're going to talk about today. That's okay. But he does well with what he's got, right? He did a great job with it. And he brings in a new cinematographer named Jan DuPont. Ah. Now, I think we're dropping this episode on October 24th. So two days ago, for those of you who are listening, right. was Jean DuPont's 80th birthday. He is still with us, and he's he really didn't. I mean, there's some incredible things that you don't... I mean, it's great that you don't think about them, but there are some incredible things that they did with the camera work on this. Oh, my gosh. I, I watched a whole breakdown of, like, the Pinto and how they had to do the spinning shot through the roof of the car, and they took the doors off, and the guys were in the car with him all around. Complicated shots. And, uh, you know, he used fire to make it look like it was hot when it was actually freezing. Yeah. Did a lot of cool stuff. Yeah, yeah. So the story is supposed to take place in the hot summer, right? Right. But they were actually filming when it was cold outside, like incredibly cold. October, November, and December in Northern California. And Dee Wallace and Danny Paturo are supposed to be in the heat, but they're not. But they had, you know, they're stripped of most of their clothes. And Dee Wallace is finally like, guys, you got to put a heater inside the car. <laughs> and then they'd start filming. They're like, we can't hear over the heater. So they would have the heater on and then they would turn it off. And yeah. So- like you were saying, it was supposed to be hot. So to give the illusion of heat coming up off of the ground, Jan DuPont would start an actual fire underneath where the eye line was so that you had the waves like of the, the heat coming up. Yeah. yeah. And there's a scene where Danny is running towards his bed. I felt like this. Like you tried to get, to, you turned off your light and tried to get to your bed before it got dark inside, right? Absolutely. And so the way that they did this is they had two sets fascinating the lights are on and it's a regular looking bedroom but as soon as they flip the switch it turns into like the bed is a football field away, right right, that's right you know? yeah so lewis teague says to yon dupont okay here's what i want to happen i want us to follow him and as he jumps we're gonna flip over and see it from upside down like he's jumping into yeah. space basically and yon dupont's like no okay yeah, yeah okay yeah and so they rig up this entire system so that he can hold the camera and flip upside down as he jumps into the bed you know it's really interesting just talking about the movie to the book yeah. one of the biggest things they kind of mention it in the movie i, th I don't think it's really emphasized but this whole thing about the monster in the closet. Tad, little boy, is scared of the monster in his closet. And his dad comes in and he says, Tad, there's no such thing as, as monsters. Cujo is the actual, like, the monster from his closet who appears in real life. Yeah. I mean, the whole the whole idea of the movie is a little bit different than the idea of the book. Because in the book, you've got supernatural things to be scared of and real things to be scared of, right? right? In this movie, unlike the other two, you don't have a supernatural element. They took that part out. And so it becomes imaginary things to be scared of, sure. like things in the closet, and potentially the not really imaginary, but things that trouble adults, like Dee Wallace is worried about, you know, growing old in a tiny little town and never making anything of herself. And the husband is worried about, you know, losing all of the money to take care of the family, which is, I mean, all of those kid, mom, and dad, those are all very identifiable fears. In the book, also, the guy she's having an affair with is off the range and upset and you know, he's willing to trash their house and destroy their life. And right. he's a real villain in the in the book. Yeah, you you described to me some of the things that he does in the book, to the pillows specifically. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm glad that did not make it into the movie. Yeah. They did tone him down a bit. They did. Okay, so we've, we've kind of wandered into production. So let's, let's back up here. Okay, so let's jump back 
talk about The Dead Zone. Okay. First of the three books that came out, but second of the movies that came out. Right. So I'm going to tell you about a guy named Peter Herkos. Okay. Do you know that name? No, I don't. All right. Peter Herkos was actually born Pieter van der Herk in May of 1911. And he was a Dutchman who claimed that he manifested ESP after recovering from a head injury and a coma caused by a fall from a ladder when he was 30 years old. Interesting. Yeah. Sounds familiar. Right. So... He ends up coming to the U.S. He's got like this guy who's a financier, wealthy guy who's like, I want you to come. And he's one of those guys who will show you the ESP tricks. Fully says, test me, do whatever you want. I will, you know, I will prove that I have ESP. He goes on the Johnny Carson show yeah. at like three different times. I mean, he is a, he is a celebrity in the U.S. in the mid 20th century. Does he shake Johnny's hand and say, you want to know when you're going to die? I'm going to die. You're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> you want to know why your sister committed suicide. <laughs> Let's waiting for that. Waiting for that. That's perfect. Okay. And so inspired by this guy's story, Stephen King decides to write a book about a clairvoyant. Yes. And that book is called The Dead Zone. Yes. So one of the cool things about the book, The Dead Zone, that's not really explained fully in the movie. I actually think it's better explained in 112263. Mm-hmm. That the future, you know, the course of time is an entity that will fight back against any changes that is brought upon it. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. And we, you know, 112263, he's trying to stop the assassination of JFK, and time is uh, an enemy. It's fighting against him changing that. And you have that physical guy when he comes back, each time that he comes back into present times, is it guy in the yellow hat? I mean, if, That's right. I feel, is it yeah. right out of Curious George, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, like, it, it, and it, it, as the past changes, the future changes, and this is this guy's kind of like a timekeeper. Uh-huh. That's, That's right. his job. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah. And so in the dead zone, mm-hmm. you know, Johnny and Sarah, when they go to that little carnival, they go to a carnival where mm-hmm. he rides the roller coaster. You see that, but there's this whole section in the book where he they, he does this roulette wheel and he starts to win because he predicts he has the shining, yeah, right? And yeah. so he has psychic abilities. And of course, King touches on this in a lot of his books. There's a lot of foreshadowing, you know, like vision, seeing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so Johnny begins to win and the carnival guy gets really upset. And Johnny, he makes off with a couple hundred bucks, but he's kind of the star of the carnival for a little bit. Yeah. And the way time fights back against him is it sends that truck and oh, after him, essentially. Okay. okay. And so it's punishment for altering time. Well, I showed you, I pulled the the script that Jeffrey Boehm wrote. I pulled it and read maybe the first 20 pages of it or so. Uh-huh. And it starts off with Johnny Smith as a kid. And he's going right. ice skating for the first time. And, you know, sees the cool kids ice skating, sees the older kids playing hockey, kind of gets distracted by what's going on his first time on the ice and ends up running into this big kid who's playing hockey slams his head against the ice and that kind of is the the spark that sets him off right as they're trying to get resuscitate him basically he does the he grabs the guy's hand i don't remember what the guy's name is but he grabs the guy's hand and he's like don't jump it don't jump it the acid that's what he says yeah and then just a little while later this guy is at his house. He's got a car battery that's dead and he gets out and these teenagers are driving by on the bridge and distracting him and he accidentally 
crosses the cables. And so when he tries to jump it, battery acid splatters all over his face. And he's like, ah. And so that would have been a fantastic intro for the movie, right? Yeah, right. And then it jumps forward to Johnny's a teacher, just like the movie really starts. But unlike the movie, he starts off as a college professor and his love interest is one of the students. Now he's a young professor, right? but it's still obviously very taboo. So Sarah is a student instead of it being that he has, he's driving Herbie the love bug <laughs> and, and runs into the slowest this, moving tanker in the oh world. Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> instead so of bad. that, it is he's on a, he's on a motorcycle basically it's it is a different introduction uh but i kind of like the idea of not going all the way back but they give us that hint when they're on the roller coaster that he did have some sort of childhood right. trauma because he's feeling a pain in his head before he ever has that accident yeah and so the book that's you know johnny's first brain trauma is that that ice accident yeah the ice is gonna break but it doesn't in this case. So, book comes out in 79. Lorimar Film Entertainment buys the rights to the book. Right. And they hire Jeffrey Boehm to write the script. Sure. That's the script that I read is the Jeffrey Boehm script, okay, right? cool, yeah. We've talked about him a couple times. He wrote Last Crusade. He wrote several other fantastic The guy's movies. really good, man. He is, he's an all-star. Wrote The Lethal Weapon, Part 2, 3. That's right, those. yeah. He's, he's good at taking over a franchise. That's right? right. They also started off with an entirely different director, a guy named Stanley Donan. Yes. You know, you know this guy? Yeah, okay, so he, this is great. I okay. can't wait to throw this at you, all right? Yeah. So the original director of The Dead Zone, this is the guy who directed Singing in the Rain, uh -huh. Damn Yankees, Funny Face. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Yeah, so he does Saturn Three. Yeah. Which is, you know, that's science fiction. That's, you know, coming into the 80s right there. Sure. But he directs the Dancing on the Ceiling video for Lionel Richie. Oh, wow. Okay. My Which, mind is blown. That's not what I was expecting <laughs> you to bring up. He t we talked about it in our Lionel Richie episode where he meets the girl who then, you know, his wife has to be called the police on and <laughs> right, all that stuff. Right. So right, right. That's when he meets her in the Dancing on the Ceiling video. Oh, that's fantastic. Do you have something else? Well, yeah. So we know that he doesn't end up staying with right. the project. Right. So 1984, he has a movie that comes out that we're, we've talked about multiple times. Uh, okay. Blame it on Rio. Oh, are you serious? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's one of his very last movies was was Blame It on Rio. <laughs> and he, you know, you mentioned Singing in the Rain. He collaborated with Gene Kelly pretty frequently, and eventually they had a falling out because he felt like Gene Kelly wasn't treating him as an equal, despite the fact that he's freaking directing Singing in the Rain. Right. And then it also was not so good that his ex-wife ended up marrying Gene Kelly. So <laughs> that'll do it. Yeah, she's a big she's a big dancing star. But anyway, so anyway, uh, Stanley Donnan is gone, and Lorimar has a bunch of failures in a row, and they basically decide to shut their film They're side finished. of things yeah. down. And then our you know our go-to guy in the '80s for buying scripts, Mister Dino De Laurentiis snatches this one up, but he hates Jeffrey Boehm's script. What? <laughs> hey, Dino De Laurentiis has given us a lot of fun movies. Yeah. We've also made fun of a lot of his stuff too, yeah. right? Flashback to our Flash Gordon episode. Flash Gordon, some of the stories on right. Dino De Laurentiis for that one are great, yes. I've got to give it up to this guy. We, we know about the fact that he doesn't speak English very well. Right. But he comes over to America and he's trying to make movies. Yeah. 
Okay, so one of the things is he, you know, Stephen King writes a script for The Dead Zone. Yeah, that was his idea. He was like, you know what? I hate this Jeffrey Bohm script. Why don't you, Mr. King, you write the script. Right, I yeah. love your story, write it. Yeah. No, it's not any good. Yeah, he read, yeah King writes it and he's like, uh, this is convoluted. Yeah, um, what? Right, and so he asks another guy, a guy named Anders Zulwaski. Yes. I mean, he's this... Polish art house film guy making movies in France. He writes the screenplay in Polish. Yeah. They then translate it to English, but for Dino, they have to translate that to Italian. Yes. They don't, and they don't translate the Polish to Italian. They translate the <laughs> English translation to Italian. Exactly. <laughs> Dino's like, I don't like this at all. Uh, yeah. So he ends up going back to Boehm's script, but his stroke of genius. I mean, he's always got one. He does. His stroke of genius is he brings in Deborah Hill. Now, we had talked, we talked about her on our 70s movies to watch during Halloween. She was John Carpenter's girlfriend. Yep. She was obviously heavily involved in movies even before him. She had helped him with Assault on Precinct 13. She and he wrote. Halloween together. It was largely based on her experience as a babysitter. Right. But I told you, I was watching interviews from back in the 80s when these movies were about to come out. She's nice looking, but she's not gorgeous. Sure. But when she starts talking, she's so freaking smart. I fall in love with her. I mean, I'm like, holy cow, this girl is a genius. She's and and proves it by going on to do so let me let me just let me touch this. All right. Okay, yeah. So she's born in 1950. Works in the movies in various positions. Ends up with uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Works on Halloween in 1978. Also The Fog. But she goes on forms her own independent film company with a lady named Linda Obst, and they produced Adventures in Babysitting, Heartbreak Hotel, nice. The Fisher King. She also produced Gross Anatomy and Clue. She worked with James Cameron back when he was just right. doing special effects. Right. She was a freaking rock star. Uh, Deborah she, Hill yeah, go ahead. is to John Carpenter what Gail Ann Hurd was to James Cameron. Very, very fair comparison. Yeah. She actually ended up passing away of colon cancer in 2005, despite the fact that she'd been fighting colon cancer, had both of her legs amputated because of the cancer. Oh, man. She was still working full tilt on a remake of The Fog with John Carpenter, as well as what? an Oliver Stone movie called World Trade Center whenever she ended up passing away. That's fascinating. They've got this script. They're at least don't hate as much as they did initially. They've got Deborah Hill on board. They looked at a couple of different directors. They looked at Michael Cimino, who did The Deer Hunter. So, I mean, he's worked with and done great work with... Christopher Walken. Yeah, but he's he's out. They go to John Badham. John Badham, Saturday yeah. Night Fever. Saturday Night Fever and... War Games. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. And they ask Cronenberg, they ask David Cronenberg to do it, and he says, no. Nah. Right. And then they're like, we got Deborah Hill. He's like, okay, I'm in. Yeah, count me in. That's, I mean, that's it. That turned him. So David Cronenberg, we talked about in our Halloween movies of the 80s. Yeah. I mean, this is this guy's directed The Brood in 1980, Scanners yep. in 1981, yep. Videodrome. Have you ever seen Videodrome? I have not seen Videodrome, no. These are very odd. They call them body gore. 
Yeah. The worst scene in the entire movie is when the killer commits suicide, and you only see that for a flash. Yeah, you don't. You really see him right before, and then the results. That's about all you see. You don't see the actual. You don't see his face peel back like in the fly. You know? Right, and and he he mentions you know clairvoyance and the movie Scanners, talking about that whole idea of having an effect on somebody with just your mind. Um, but but this was the first movie that he hadn't had at least some sort of partial writing involvement with the script. He worked with Jeffrey Bohm and revised the script and condensed it about four different times before they finally ended up with the final draft, November 8th, 1982. By the way, his original, Jeffrey Bohm's original script, finished on the day that Ronald Reagan got elected. So really a few years later that they end up with their, their final, we're going to use this shooting script that was done. Like I said, November 8th, they start shooting January of 83. This movie really is in three sections. The screenplay, they call it a, a trip tyke, which yeah. I thought was interesting. Yeah. So you have Johnny and his accident, by the way, trip tyke, it's a religious symbol that has three parts. Just thought I'd throw that out. There you, you go. There you go. But, uh, so you've got Johnny and his accident. You've got the serial killer thread, yep. and yep. then you've got Stilson. It's a three-part story. I love it. Yeah. Okay. So we've got two or three out of the way. Let's talk about Christine. Yes. So you mentioned in our best movies for Halloween in the 70s that you saw a TV adaptation. Movie, yeah. yeah, a TV movie of Stephen King's book called Salem's Lot. Yeah, super creepy, right? Yeah. So one of the producers on that was a guy named Richard Corbett. Mm -hmm. And so Stephen King actually really loved the adaptation that he did. Stephen King says, I really love what you've done. I've got some things that I'm working on uh -huh, now right. that are not going to be books until later. Would you like to see those before they become books? Uh, uh, yes, yes, please. please. I'll take it. <laughs> what? Whatever it is. Wow. And so, of course, the first two opportunities that he gets to see a book, number one, Cujo. I know. Number two, Christine. Yeah. Both he and John Carpenter, who ends up being the director on this, both were like, I can't figure out how Cujo becomes a movie, right? right. I, I just don't, I don't see how that becomes a scary movie. Sure. John Carpenter actually felt the same way about Christine. He was like... I mean, I've seen Herbie Goes Bananas. Yeah. Is that, is that what he said? <laughs> no, he okay. did. that's me. <laughs> but I mean, that's that that was kind of his that was kind of his take. He said, this is his quote. It just wasn't very frightening. It's a cute little car. Yeah. The reason that Stephen King, by the way, used this Plymouth Fury is that he felt like it had been underused in cinema and literature. He's like, this is a really cool car yeah. that nobody seems to mention. The giant fins in the back. It's the biggest fins for the smallest car, but it was a sweet little ride. I did hear John Carpenter say that he had seen Duel yeah. by Steven Spielberg. Yep. And he's like, now those trucks were scary. Yeah, you got a big monster truck. Yeah, but this cool little cherry red convertible thing right here, <laughs> not that scary. Right. But he gave it his best shot, and I thought he'd... He did make it scary. It'd be like trying to make a, a like a baby doll scarier. <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's child's play. Yeah. And so the interesting thing, I think, John Carpenter takes this movie as a paycheck. Guys, please go back last season and check out our comparison of Blade Runner, E.T., and The Thing. And one of the key stories that most people know from that is that The Thing was a box office failure and probably would not have been but for et That's coming right. out two weeks beforehand same thing happened to blade runner yeah and you talk about three movies that are revered from the 80s yeah we talked about it the thing maybe the best horror movie of the 1980s yeah blade runner the best science fiction movie of the 80s and et maybe the best family movie of the 80s so have you seen video drum yes okay 
did you like it? No. It, it hasn't gotten that cult status. See, now... I did like seeing Deborah Harry <laughs> vamping it up a little bit, but... Uh, so, so Cronenberg had done Videodrome and had already gotten signed on to do The Dead Zone before it came out. And so it gets released while he's in the midst of directing The Dead Zone. Yeah. And is a dismal failure. Yeah. Now, Carpenter had said, okay, I want to do Firestarter. He had another movie that he was That's working right. on as well, but he That's was right. like, I'm going to go do Firestarter. But then the thing comes out, and it is this box office bomb, and so they're like, eh, yeah. maybe we don't do that with John Carpenter right now. And so delays, well, here's skepticism. The thing. Well, here's the thing with Firestarter, with John Carpenter. Yeah. They said, we'll keep you, but we're cutting your budget in half. And he's like, no, yeah, no. Right. Can't do that. So Richard Corbett's the producer of Salem's Lot, who has Christine and is wanting to make it a movie, comes back to him again, and he's like, hey, I've still got this property. They had worked together on a TV movie called Someone's Watching Me, but Carpenter is like, I, I'm stuck. I have to have a job. I can't, you know, I've got a family to feed. You know, I, I got to right? do something. And so he's like, okay, I'll do it. He's, Wasn't he married to Adrian Barbeau, by the way? At this point or ever? Ever. Yes, he was. Yeah. They okay. were, well, if they weren't married, they were very, I think probably at this point they were probably married. Cause remember she was the, the sole female cast member of the thing. She was the voice on the computer. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. I've, I've got Adrian Barbeau. You think those boobs are going to hang around for nothing? <laughs> <laughs> I got Burt Reynolds staring down <laughs> her shirt right. all day long. I got I to bring home the cash. Captain Chaos is hanging around a little bit. <laughs> so Carpenter says, okay, I'll do it. I don't like the script. Let's bring on Bill Phillips. And so Bill Phillips is the one that gives us this script. So if you're, if you're hearing Bill Phillips and you're like, who is that yeah. again? I mean, it's not Lawrence Kasdan. It's not you right. know, it's a big name that you recognize. The only movie that he had done before this movie was a movie called Summer Solstice, which okay. was a TV movie. Yeah. Yeah, I have yeah, no idea no, what that is. No. So why did Carpenter pick him? Because he had worked with him on Firestarter. Right. They had been working together on Firestarter. And so he was like, okay, that's not that project is not moving forward. I have another Stephen King. He's done good work with Stephen King. Let's bring this guy on and yeah, see what he does. that's right. I don't think the dialogue is bad in this. I don't think the... The writing is bad. I think it's no, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's yeah. kind of where it needs to be. So I'm a little surprised that Bill Phillips has really done. I mean, he's got a large body of work, but it's like all TV movies and teleplays. Not a, not a lot of stuff I recognize. Yeah. Uh -huh. So Bill Phillips produces a decent script. Carpenter's on to direct so that he can rehabilitate his reputation. Right. And there's just one more key ingredient that needs to happen. And that is special effects. And fortunately, he had just finished a movie called The Thing uh -huh. with a guy named Roy Arbogast. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, The Thing. And now we're about to see what he can do with a car. They do some amazing things with this car. Absolutely. Okay, so you ready to talk casting? Let's talk casting. Okay. Yeah, let's let's flip back over to Cujo. Okay. When we talk about Cujo, you got to start with D. Wallace, D. Wallace Stone, right? Right. So she had just played Elliot's mother from E.T. Yeah. And she's really the mom of the 1980s, right? For me, for sure. Like, I totally, totally identify her with a mother figure in my head, for sure. I mean, E.T., yep. Cujo, yep. Secret Admirer, one of my favorites. The Howling. The yeah. Howling. Yeah. Not that she's a mom in that, but right. memorable, caring part. Yeah. yeah. Critters. 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 <laughs> I can't believe you brought up Critters. Uh, of course I did. <laughs> 
And so she's in it to play Donna Trenton. Now in the book, you know, she's slumming around with this guy. She's having this affair and it's kind of this. He was the guy who was in the howling with her. I know. Well, that's her real life husband. Ah, right? yeah, that's right. I, I thought that was kind of cool. By the way, he passed away at only 55 when he died. Right. She does a great job as the mother. I just don't see her as the sex kitten. Well, and that's not the way that she plays it. I mean, she's got a long, not form-fitting red nightgown. That's I mean, buttoned up all, all the way. I mean, it's, it, it's really like June Cleaver. Having an affair is what it, it was. What it's it seems like, right? It is, right? And you don't even really completely realize what's going on until she puts her panties on. That's right. Which you don't see because the nightgown goes all the way to her ankles. <laughs> <laughs> they actually do a pretty cool job of like slow revealing that. You're like, wait a minute, what? She's getting out of bed with that guy. Yeah, she's holding her panties. What the heck is going on here? Yeah. I'm offended for Vic, right? And so Vic, Vic Trenton, her husband, the guy who is driving around the nice car, well, she has the piece of crap Pinto, which you, yeah. <laughs> you texted me this week. I'm watching this movie, and I'm like, she's having an affair. And then I'm like, he's driving a Jag. And she's driving a Pinto. And I'm like, I'm looking these things up right now. Ladies and gentlemen, from the same dealership, you can get a 1970s model Jag for $119,000. Uh -huh. Or you can get a 1970s Pinto for $8,500. <laughs> no wonder she's having an affair. Yeah, exactly. She's driving this. We having an affair too. So uh, Vic Trenton is played by Daniel Hugh Kelly. He was from soap operas and stuff like that. Yeah, I pointed out to you that he was later after this in uh, Hardcastle and McCormick. That's right. Yeah. D. Wallace said he was really nervous. He, he saw this as his big break, and so he really wanted to be good, and so he kind of leaned on her, and, and uh, you know, she's a movie star, so... I, he did a good job in this, and I mean, he's an interesting-looking guy. He's a handsome guy. Right. I'm really surprised that he kind of just went back into TV after, and maybe that was his choice. I right. don't know, but I'm surprised he didn't have a bigger movie career after this. Yeah, he did a good job. Then, of course, you've got Danny Pintero, which we talked about, who plays Tad. Now, Tad in this movie is a six-year-old boy yeah. who's incredibly annoying the entire time. See, you say that, and he's supposed to be. He is supposed to be. He's supposed to be. I mean, I genuinely think that for a six-year-old, this kid gave the performance of a lifetime. He did. I mean, it is incredible, because at no point am I thinking, oh, this is just an actor faking this. I'm thinking, this is exactly what a a six-year-old, this is exactly how they would react if all of this was going on. No doubt. And, and just... I didn't mention this before. I didn't see any of these movies at the time they came out. I saw Christine, I believe, in the 90s. And I saw Cujo and The Dead Zone within the last two weeks. Mm -hmm. I was looking. I you know, I looked up Danny Paturo to see. I was like, oh, the, who's the boss kid? Yeah, of course, right? right? Of course, yeah. Yeah. And, and I looked at how old he was. He was literally, he's literally like less than six months younger than I am. At the time that Cujo came out, I was the same age as this kid. And you were incredibly annoying. Probably so. Yes. Whining and fussing and want yeah. your daddy. Not, uh, yeah. yeah. Right? I get your daddy! <laughs> By the way, I know that we're not there yet, but that scene, Lewis Teague talked about cutting. He, he They saw it and it was such a, you know, uh, whoa. We, we don't want to hate the, yeah, we the don't, main character. And D. Wallace was like, no, this is, this is exactly how a parent would react. Because at some point, even though you love these kids... You're in a situation where the stress builds and builds and builds, and it just it comes out like a volcano. Yeah. And she, 
Yep. She erupted. Yep. She erupted. Okay. And then you've got, I mean, you've got some side characters, but, you know, Christopher Stone we talked about. He is Steve. That's the guy she's having an affair with. Uh-huh. He's Vic's tennis buddy. Right. Backstabbing tennis buddy, kind of handyman yeah. around town. The sheriff in Cujo that's uh-huh. killed. His name's George Bannerman. Okay, so Sandy Ward plays George Bannerman. I mentioned earlier, Cujo actually kills him when he goes out to to check on a, a lead to find Donna and Tad. Finds them, of course, there. He also finds a disgusting, nasty, crazy dog and gets killed. That's the same guy from The Dead Zone. He's oh, the, the character is the same character. Yeah, the, the character is played by Tom Skerritt in The Dead Zone. Yeah. And he and Johnny Smith are walking around trying to find the serial killer. But you have 13 different St. Bernard dogs. Well, you had Billy Jacoby as Brett Camber, the kid, who's he's been in... Quite a few things. He ha- He's the brother in just one of the guys. <laughs> yes, he is. How the, about that? The pervy, the pervy little That's brother. That's right. That's a great part for him. I know, right? <laughs> that was a... Yeah, he was, in, he was in Parker Lewis Can't Lose and a ton of other stuff. Yeah, yes, you're right. He, he was speckled throughout the 80s. But then you have 13 different dogs who play Cujo. Well, yeah, and that's the funny thing is that nobody can tell you exactly how many dogs. Like, everybody remembers a different number of dogs. <laughs> right. And you had real dogs, at least five of those. You had mechanical dogs. You had a guy in a dog suit. Yep, that's right. And there's a great picture, like a, a behind-the-scenes picture of D. Wallace, and I, I, was, I think it was Louis Teague, and the guy in the dog suit doing like a, but you know, like a high kick. Yeah, like a yeah chorus girl kick. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, that's funny. One of the issues they actually had on set is that Saint Bernards are super friendly dogs, right? Yeah. Super friendly. They're like dealing with a lab retriever. Now they'll do what you t- you say, but they'll wag their tail the entire time. Right. They had to tie down his tail so it wouldn't wag. Yeah. And then, you know, getting them to bark and, you know, they're, they're teasing it with a toy and he's trying to get the toy through the window and they had to put this uh, egg white and sugar, you know, concoction all over the dog's face and you had to film quick because the dog would spend the next 10 minutes licking it all off their face. Right. The animal control guy is named Gary Morgan. When he got the job, he was like, a St. Bernard? You mean the ones that rescue people in the Alps with a little whiskey (laughs) barrel underneath their chin? The sweet, kind, lovable, fuzzy. By the way, Tad has a St. Bernard doll in his room. You can see it. Um, But he's like, they don't really train those dogs. How about we do a Doberman? Uh, Dobermans are mean and easily trained, and they're like, it's going to be a St. Bernard. And <laughs> We've so, already made the man in the suit <laughs> costume over right. here. <laughs> and so, yeah, so he had to he had to figure out how to train half a dozen or so real dogs that they had, but they said he was just a genius about it. His daughter, I think, is, is, is doing animal stuff in movies now, Teresa Morgan. You know, I told you I watched some videos on rabies. Yeah. And so it's a it's a neurological disease. Yeah. One of the things I learned about is it there's this uh, barrier that uh, some viruses can get into your brain, uh-huh. and once it gets in there, your body's immune system can't fight it. I saw raccoons with rabies, and I could not stop laughing because <laughs> they're trying to capture them in a in a trash dumpster and stuff, and uh-huh. they are going bananas. <laughs> And they're foaming at the mouth, and they're aggressive, and they're attacking. And, yeah. But I saw a skunk; he couldn't stand up. He was, he was falling over. And and Cujo looks nothing like any of these animals. So, well, you you had talked to me about how in the book you actually get you get the 
St. Bernard's perspective. You get Cujo's yeah. perspective on it. Like you're, he's, he is lovable. Like they start the movie with a very lovable Disney esque kind of scene where he's chasing this rabbit around in the green field and it's all pretty and warm. Um, but you said in the book, like you see his mental deterioration as he kind of narrates his perspective. It's true. It's true. He looks at the man and the boy and he recognizes them and loves them and he wants to be a good boy. And the real villain of this story is the virus. Okay. So let's talk about casting for the dead zone. Okay. So on the dead zone, Uh they hire the amazing Christopher Walken to play Johnny Smith. Do you know who Stephen King wanted to play this role? No. Bill Murray. I could see that. How about that? I could see that. I mean, Christopher Walken has got a creepiness that Bill doesn't have. I think that baby Bill would have probably been a little too lovable, but no, I could see him. I could see him doing that. Hey, you know, when we talk about the alternate video store, we could go rent these movies and the alternate universe. This is one of those at the top of my list. I want to see Bill Murray as Johnny Smith. And, you know, the whole premise of this book came about from Stephen King's question, could I make an assassin a good guy? And he does, right? Yeah, yeah, he does. And who is more lovable than Bill Murray? Ask Chevy Chase. I mean, he'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but David Cronenberg, he wanted Nicholas Campbell to be the lead to play Johnny Smith. Okay, Nicholas Campbell was the lead from the movie The Brood, which was a David Cronenberg movie. Uh-huh. And so he, they had worked together before, and he's like, how about this guy? And they're like, we don't know who that is. Right. And so he hired him. He's the guy who plays Frank Dodd. Oh, yeah. Okay. Right? I got you. Yeah, that's right. Brooke Adams plays Sarah in this. So pretty. I think she's just got a very genuinely pretty face. Great cheekbones. Yeah. She's pretty and lovable, and you can see her as the motherly character. Uh-huh. And she vamps it up a, you know, a little bit for Johnny. And, for sure. You know, I go with that. Yeah, she was in Invasion of the Body Snatchers. She was in Invasion with, of the Body Snatchers. With uh, Donald Sutherland. Yep. But she's married to Tony Shaw. You know who that is? The guy, Monk. Yeah, Monk. The or, guy from Wings. Yeah, yeah, the guy from Wings, yes. Oh, my yeah. gosh. She's been married to him since 1992, so they're 31 years in now. Apparently, there's a uh, WWF wrestler named Brooke Adams who's... <laughs> <laughs> Major hot too. Yeah. So then you've got Tom Skerritt who plays George Bannerman. We talked about him uh-huh. already. That's yeah. Viper from Top Gun. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. They originally wanted Hal Holbrook to play that character. Right. Which I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. Hal Holbrook had just finished up with Creep Show from That's right. King, right? That's right. This is one of the ones that I find really interesting. Herbert Lom plays Sam Wiesak. Yeah. He's the doctor. He's Johnny's friend. He's Johnny's doctor. Mm-hmm. And he is so lovable in this. <laughs> And he is the bumbling, <laughs> nothing goes right, inspector from the Pink Panther movies. Right. Is he, and he is, is he inspector so, or like commissioner? Or? He's chief inspector Dreyfus. He is so freaking funny in the Pink Panther movies. And in this, he's just totally just a lovable doctor. Yeah. I, he's the one that goes crazy. He's always trying to kill Clouseau. Kill Clouseau. <laughs> Can't get rid of him. Got to kill him. That's right. That's right. And then, of course, you've got Martin Sheen, who plays Greg Stilson. Yeah. And Sheen had come off. He, he had played JFK, I think, earlier in his career in something. Okay. He's good. As the as the slammy politician, and then of course he goes on to be the president in the West Wing, which goes right. for years and years. Right, it's he's he's good in that in that spot. Yeah, I saw an interview with Stephen King, and he was comparing Greg Stilson to Donald Trump. In the interview that I watched, he takes a lot of credit for forecasting the sort of snake oil salesman who rises to the White House. You know, right? Kind of interesting. Yeah. All right, so that about wraps up the cast for. 
the dead zone. Yep. Okay. Let's flip over to Christine. Sounds good. Start her up. Her name's Christine. Okay, so the main actor in Christine is a guy named Keith Gordon. Yeah, he plays Arnie Cunningham, or Cuntingham, if you're a <laughs> school bully. That's right. <laughs> if you'll remember, we talked about this in our Footloose episode. They had originally hired Kevin Bacon to play this character. Yeah, yeah. And, and then... He, he had to go, guys, I'm sorry, but... <laughs> he had to make a decision. He was already hired to play Arnie for Christine when Footloose came knocking. How different a movie would this have been had you had Kevin Bacon in the Arnie Cunningham position? It'd be different. I mean, he's taller. He's better looking. He, I don't know that he would pull off nerd like Arnie Cunningham does. I'm with you, man. I don't know how or that. Like Keith Gordon does. Yep. Then you've got John Stockwell who plays Arnie's best friend, Dennis. Yep. Cougar from Top Gun. Cougar from Top Gun. Right. And he, he's been in some stuff. He was in My Science Project. I saw an interview with him. He's playing the jock, the football player, the cool guy in school. Yeah. He's like, all that, fabricated, nothing like me, totally knew nothing about that world, but I thought he pulled it off perfectly. Yeah. I mean, he looks well, like the cool high school guy. Yeah, I mean, and the, the other thing is he had just graduated from college, so he's he's four years older. A lot of times the reason the guys are popular is because they're bigger and more mature, and so now he's got that, that going for him. But it's interesting, both of these guys uh, don't really do much acting at all anymore. They've both become writer, producer, directors. That's right. I saw Keith Gordon when they were asking him about this character. Yeah. He initially took it, but he's like, oh, this is my chance to play Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah. yeah. I thought that was really cool. You know, a great way of looking at it. Yeah. He goes through a major transformation. And he and he is, I mean, he to me, is more, goof, more goofy looking, more ner nerdy looking, but he's still... Kind of pulls off the the cool kid when he does start, you know, when he makes his change. Yeah. When he becomes Dr. Jekyll, he kind of he kind of pulls off the coolness. By the way, Keith Gordon, Thornton Mellon's son in Back to School. <laughs> yes. Jason. Yeah. The guy who is, uh, wants to be on the diving team. Yeah. Uh, okay. And then you've got the beautiful Alexandra Paul. Yes. Who was 19 when she was hired to do this. This is her first kind of big deal. Was not significantly trained as an actress. Said she'd never read never read a Stephen King book before, but read this one when she got the part so that she could get a kind of deeper understanding of the character. Yeah, she's so beautiful that I struggled to see Arnie and her together. And I know that's part of the... Well, just keep in mind, she was kind of the, the homely one on Baywatch. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's a maybe there. If she's you know? homely, then you know. Well, I mean, when you're standing next to Pam Anderson, Pam Anderson, Pam, yeah, parts of it, yeah, they're running. <laughs> I like to watch it when they're running. He is thinking about <laughs> running. Yasmin Bleeth. Oh man, yeah, Donna DeArco and oh gosh, Cameron or Carmen Electra and yep, yeah. So anyway, yes, but but for this for 19 year, yes, she is stunning. However, you got Kelly freaking Preston knocking on your door, begging you. Right. And and you're like, yeah, whatever. What? What? I, I She is totally wasted in this movie. Oh my gosh. She's so well, but I I think that that was their intent because I know, I mean, I know looking back that there were girls in high school who were gorgeous who i just didn't look at because of some reason that i can't explain at this point <laughs> who now i'm like oh she was so into me and i was such an idiot back well, then it's probably because she's a sophomore and you're a senior or something dumb like that right right 
And so I think you're, the idea was you're, you're feeling the same way where you're like, you want to grab, you want to grab Dennis by the, by his letterman jacket and go, what's wrong with you? She's totally into you, dude. <laughs> she's begging you to ask her out. Yeah. So she's Roseanne. She's a friend of Dennis and she like makes googly eyes at him. And then we leave her. We never see her again. Nothing ever happens. Well, you see her on the sideline as cheerleader. And, uh, even though she is in rather a bulky kind of sweater thing, she still looks amazing. Kelly Preston. Underrated. Happy birthday today, by the That's way. Right. We're, we're recording on the thir- October 13th, her birthday. If you want to hear soul. us uh, gaga a little more about Kelly Preston, go back to our twins episode. Yeah. The so. best thing about that movie. <laughs> uh, you also have Robert Prosky, who plays Will, the garage owner. Yeah, who we just got done talking about, Last Action Hero. He was the uh, the movie he's operator. He's the ticket taker, yeah. and he's also the one of the guys in The Great Outdoors. Yep. And <laughs> he's also like the TV production guy in Mrs. Doubtfire. I don't think you want those kids kissing him. <laughs> oh, why not? He's just old. He's been dead for an hour. <laughs> <laughs> And then you've got Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, good old Harry Dean Stanton from Alien and a million other things where yeah. he was a, a bad guy, but he hit John Carpenter up and he was like, I don't want to play a bad guy. He Can plays you? awesome, man. He does a great job as a cop in this one. Yep. Very good, yeah. Uh, you might remember him from Red Dawn where he's telling the boys to avenge me. <laughs> okay, a couple of guys I want to mention before we leave this, but you have William Ostrander who plays Buddy. Yeah. We talked about how he looks exactly like a 70s era bully. Yeah, 100%. Like there was a guy who lived next door who was one of those guys it, it, for me, you know, always leaned over his hood of his, I can't remember, I think it was a Camaro, blue Camaro, 70s model Camaro, and just was a piece of crap. <laughs> just an absolute, had the pube stash until he was 19, you right. know, just a crud hole. Yeah, we all know guys like that. Yeah. We also want to mention a guy named Stephen Tash. Okay. He's one of Buddy's minions. He plays a guy named Richie. Why are we mentioning Stephen Tash? You might remember him from a little movie called Ghostbusters. (laughs) (laughs) He's the guy at the beginning. He's chewing the gum. He's like, ah, a couple of wavy lines. And he's like, oh, I'm studying the effect of it. The effect? I'll tell you what the effect is. It's It's pissing pissing me me off. Uh, he's great in this uh, as one of the uh, the little toadies. Yeah. You can't forget about Robert's Blossom, man. Oh, I know, right? How did I miss him? All right. So Robert's Blossom, we all know from Home Alone as the, the guy next door. The scary neighbor. Yeah, scary neighbor with a shovel. Yep. Who saves him at the end. So he plays the brother of Roland LeBay, George LeBay, who's selling the car, right? That's right. And is very creepy. Because he's, he's stone dead, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> he's got that weird, dirty, like, back brace that he wears. and he, It doesn't give an explanation for that. He is scary in this. That character is actually, his brother's character, is the one that's supposed to be possessing the car, but they changed that feature. And so there are a ton of things like that that are different from the book to the movie, but we will get into all of that on our next episode. Okay, guys, that does it for casting. Be sure to come back next week. We are going to talk about the distinction and differences between the books and the movies a little bit. We're going to talk about the stories that led to them. We're going to talk about the stories of production, reception, and then we're going to give you our final judgment. And in addition to that, we've got a question. What are your three favorite Stephen King works that have become movies or TV series. Fantastic. I can't wait for you to show me. 
<laughs> <laughs> Come back <Nice>. next week. <laughs>